0: Welcome to See, Here Speak podcast, episode 18. In this episode, I talk with Sean Redman with co-host Norma Craffy. We discuss Sean's work on developmental language disorder, specific language impairment, and ADHD. This conversation is one in a five-part series on developmental language disorder, known as DLD, released this week in honor of DLD Awareness Day, which this year is on Friday, October 18th. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.SeeHearSpeakPodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcast. Or wherever you are listening well welcome uh, Sean and Norma to see Here speak podcast I'll start out by having you
1: introduce yourself Sean first hi um, I'm Sean Redmond from the University of Utah and I have um, a doctorate in child language and I uh, teach courses in child language disorders and um, do research in that area, and I'm a certified speech-language pathologist.
0: Awesome, and Norma, first I have to say, happy birthday to Norma. She's recording (laughs) on her birthday, a birthday (laughs) podcast for you. But Norma, please introduce yourself. Hi
2: everyone, Norma Crappy here. I am a reading specialist with a background in public education, um, K-12, and I'm also a now second-year doc student that studies with Dr. Hogan over at the IHP in the Sale lab and my primary interest is the overlap between uh, disorders of language and literacy so dyslexia and DLD but also the comorbidity of uh, disorders such as ADHD
0: that we'll be talking about today. Fantastic. Well, Sean, you study DLD and ADHD, and I've had the good fortune of working with you for several several years ago on a paper in LSHSS, and Mm -hmm. we're currently working on a paper together with Norma right now, so stay tuned for that one. Um, Why should – I want the listeners to understand, like, why study these two populations together and think if you could tell us more about what defines each, how they're similar and how they're different.
1: Yeah, so um, in some ways – Developmental language disorders and ADHD is a study in contrast. So um, one of the disorders is one of the most widely recognized conditions worldwide. Um, ADHD doesn't have a problem with uh, name recognition, and it's um, on the the thoughts and concerns of parents when they start noticing their children aren't developing uh, in line with their expectations or what they, um, are observing in other children in the family or uh, their children's peers. In contrast, developmental language disorder is a condition which often doesn't um, cross people's minds as a possibility for explaining why children might um, be um, um, out of sync with our expectations in, their, in terms of their development. Um, from a teacher's perspective, a child with ADHD and a child with DLD might behave the same in the classroom, in that um, children from both groups might have difficulties following directions, for example. Uh, but those the source of those problems are probably very different and would require different kinds of responses. Uh, the other reason to study these two conditions is that they are both very common. Um, which is what the epidemiological evidence is telling us. But in terms of identification, um, the contrast between those two conditions is we have, a, we have concerns with under-identification with uh, developmental language disorders and have at different times had concerns over over-identification of ADHD. So um, for those reasons, uh, They're worth taking a look at from um, a practitioner perspective. Um, And I think it's where um, uh, teachers and parents and speech pathologists live. They regularly encounter children from both groups. Sometimes they encounter children who have both conditions. And um, what's what has gone underdeveloped in our field. Is a way of um, identifying or differentiating the two conditions um, and uh, uh, establishing cross-communication between clinical psychologists, school psychologists, and speech-language pathologists on how to uh, manage these two conditions.
0: I've heard you talk also about some of the theoretical um, nuances between studying them related to processing speed. Is that correct and how does that play out?
1: Yes. So the other reason um, beyond those sort of practical considerations um, is to use uh, the two conditions as a way of testing different hypotheses we might have about how things like attention and language abilities link. And um, when you only compare a clinical group to a group of kids who are typically developing, uh, you're likely to find differences at the group level Uh, on any number of dimensions, Uh, but some of that's going to be due to ascertainment bias, and some of that's going to be due to measurement confounds, Um, and you really need the cross-clinical comparison to test the um, uh, necessity and sufficiency of different mechanisms. So for example, um, if it's the case that something like sustained attention compromises children's grammatical development, then if we looked at a group of kids with ADHD that have problems with sustained attention, then we should be able to find evidence of limited grammatical proficiencies. Um, And so those kinds of um, predictions can really only be tested when we, well, have a two-group or a three-group design that the in those two clinical groups. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So practically and clinically speaking, and when you've studied uh, these two um, impairments, you've spoke about three presuppositions associated with the study of these two. So can you tell us about those presupp- presuppositions? I knew I would stumble on that word. And how you examined them in your research. I'm, I'm very curious to hear about these three different approaches and what they've told you.
1: So um, when I started my, when I started getting interested in... in um, what comorbidity could tell us about um, uh, how language disorders develop. Um, it, it started to become apparent that in order to do that, um, I needed to establish some um, assumptions or presuppositions about where we were as a field and where the, the literature had developed to. And so one. Um, of the presuppositions is that um, there's enough clarity in the, in the reports of, of co-occurrence that allows us to um, rule out the possibility that we're getting uh, referral ascertainment or measurement bias. Um, and so if it's the case that children with behavior problems are more likely to be referred for language evaluations, um, then the the rate of comorbidity in a, a community sample is going to be elevated, or in a clinical sample, is going to be elevated. Um, if the way we're measuring um, language or the way we're measuring ADHD introduces measurement error by virtue of in, requiring um, Uh, proficiency in the other domain. So for example, if you're doing a a language test that requires a lot of uh, planning Um, for children with ADHD, because of their ADHD they're going to have problems completing that language task, but not because they have a primary deficit in uh, language processing or semantics or or, um, syntax. On the other side, if how we're identifying inattention Or hyperactivity or impulsivity um, is dependent upon symptoms that overlap with um, a problem with understanding words or sentences. Um, Then we're going to have some problems in measurement on that side. And so a lot of what I've been working on over the past few years has been to look at the content of behavioral rating scales, which still represents the dominant um, assessment modality for identifying um, risk for ADHD in kids. Um, and looking at the items that are included into the either the inattention scale, the impulsivity scale, hyperactivity scale, or some kind of composite ADHD measure. Um, and what I found Regularly, and this is, we just recently updated this with a new report looking at new measures. Um, is that there's a lot of items there that would be identified by speech language pathologists as being kind of more or less in the language realm, uh, especially in the areas of receptive language. Um, and these instruments aren't typically designed to differentiate those conditions. So it's almost as if a child with a language impairment is already at a at a penalty when a parent or a teacher is asked to fill out one of these scales. Yeah, Um,
0: I remember Sean when I first started working with you um, several years ago. I I remember having this discussion with you and being very surprised because I hadn't spent at that time I hadn't really spent much time thinking about what was on those rating scales. But then I remember you pulled one up and for instance it was one of the um, ways to identify ADHD was couldn't understand directions, or even more mind-blowing to me, one of them was couldn't spell words correctly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm thinking, huh. And then I also remember reading a lot about uh, scholars making the argument that there shouldn't be this measurement issue with ADHD because, on one hand, with ADHD it's parent and teacher rating scales, and with language and other communication disorders, um, you see that it's based on clinician direct assessment. And so this person was trying to argue there shouldn't be as much overlap. But when you looked at the actual items, especially on the ADHD rating scales, I was just, my mind was blown. Um, and I know clinicians are seeing this every day. And I think you've seen this too, Norma, in terms of the scales.
2: Yeah, yeah, the scales. I- and actually, um, I'm taking advanced measurement right now. Um, and as Dr. Alan Jetty would say, is that the scales um are not biased in of themselves or subject or the people aren't filling them out. It's the scales and how they're constructed. Um, because I was actually asking about this last week. But it is something you know, within the schools that we see a lot, and I think that it gives a lot of um, difficulty, number one, as you said, to identify kids that were even to be talking about children with developmental language disorder um, and having any language difficulty if it's not expressive, but also to differentiate between children um, that the severity of whether or not it is truly ADHD or whether or not, you know, there's a behavioral difficulty at the time that hasn't been worked through. you know that's something we see a lot and i think that it gives a stigmatism to adhd that as you said earlier that there's this potential for overdiagnosis of it and that definitely is impairing to the children who truly do have adhd and really have a difficulty getting a diagnosis at all and especially in the schools because that's not a diagnosis we provide although we do fill out the scales Um, And I was just um, interested in the paper that you were talking Dr. Redman earlier in the um, 2002 where you did that evaluation of the scales and to see the difference and that the the best scale that that you had come up with that um, You know was most sensitive to that language piece was a scale that we don't even use in the schools The Connors or the Vanderbilt's are really the most assigned. So I thought that was really interesting in and of itself and problematic for clinicians. Um, the other thing that I've noticed in the schools even within the evaluations of SLPs working with kids with attentional so frequently um, when I would send kids from a reading perspective to an evaluation and they would have a language evaluation the speech and language pathologist would often make assumptions about why kids did poorly due to inattention on tasks of the CTOP for instance non-word rep or on the self there was always um, an element of, well, he or she was distracted, that's why they're doing poorly on this. Whereas from my practitioner's perspective and working with the child every day, I could truly see that there was a, a um, difficulty there. So I can see how it can be a barrier, and I'm really interested to hear more about how we can try to bridge that barrier.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, going back to the the. The list of assumptions or presuppositions mm. that Tiffany was talking about. Um, some of the things that you were talking about there Norma highlights some of the challenges. So um, uh, if we aren't positioning ourselves in a way that um, something like differential diagnosis is going to be part of the assessment process, um, then it's it leaves those possibilities open to our imaginations about what is motivating children's poor performance in different areas. And, um, what we do in the lab is uh, we assess our, our children, our participants with ADHD, uh, when, they're, when they're, um, they've had washout, their medications um, have been suspended. And uh, when you do that uh, you realize that there's a lot of um, behavioral management issues that you need to attend to. Um, And by attending, I mean you uh, relax some of the ideas that children have to have quiet hands. You relax the criteria that children have to stay in their chair. You relax the criteria that children have to complete a task from beginning to end and um, can't um, go off task for a while and come back. Um, And what we have typically noticed in our um, assessments is that for the children with ADHD, their, their verbal abilities um, line up pretty nicely with their nonverbal abilities, and if there really was a big discrepancy between what they could pref- do, what, what they could perform if they were paying more attention or couldn't perform doesn't seem to be supported by a discrepancy in that dimension. Um, Now having said that, it's also true that in our literature we don't have any studies that have looked at how children perform on language tasks within a particular participant on and off medication. Mm -hmm. And to have gotten this far in our field and not have had that established is kind of remarkable. Um, I mentioned that um, embracing the idea that differential diagnosis is part of our task is an important one. If you go into our pre-professional textbooks, for example, uh, I've only been able to find one that even has differential diagnosis as an index item in the back of the book. Wow. Uh, and this is this is a text that's supposed to be for a clinical profession, and yet it doesn't have differential diagnosis as a topic. Yeah. And so uh, there's a number of reasons why I think that's the case. Part of it has to do with the way we're situated to treat child language disorders most commonly in the school context. And in the school context, um, the idea of diagnosis or labeling is really only mentioned as a negative, Uh as the thing that we want to avoid. And so we're in this weird space where we're trying to apply principles of good clinical practice and yet we're not allowed to do one of the most fundamental aspects of clinical practice and that's differential diagnosis or at least we perceive that we're not allowed to do that
0: absolutely and I think that's a nice parallel to what's happening in dyslexia too you have the whole movement to you know there's this whole hashtag say dyslexia You know, say it in the schools, diagnose it, and it's still, even though the law, all the states, correct me if I'm wrong, Norm. I think all the states now have some law on the books about dyslexia is that correct
2: um I would I don't think it's all yet but there are some there is a major more than yeah. I don't know the actual yeah the numbers
0: the last time um, I checked it was 42 but I was thinking it might be more yeah. um but even with all those laws on the books to screen there's the variability across the states what the law says we still see when we go into schools that there's this resistance to label the child at all and it's seen as this negative like you said Sean and so it really is um it's very difficult to think about using different differential diagnosis in a system that doesn't even want to acknowledge diagnosis
1: that's yeah and i and i think that um will represent a barrier as we move forward to trying to elevate public awareness Mm -hmm. of language disorders um and um Yeah. Um, well, I'll let you talk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I was just gonna
1: say. Oh, well,
0: that's okay. I was just gonna say that. Um, y- y- you know, I think that was probably the biggest difference that I encountered moving from clinical practice to a research career was uh, in clinical practice. I did, I do think I did thorough evaluations as much as possible. I definitely didn't have the training and measurement that I wish I would have had. Uh, but I definitely, but I. I don't think I necessarily thought about the comprehensive nature of my evaluation in the sense of trying to think about all the different possibilities and that one could influence the other. I didn't have that level of specificity, but part of it was because I was never encouraged to. In the system itself, it was never thought. It was always like, "Don't worry about that. Just work on what they need." Um, and I do think that there's a miss. I think that's. I think that's a mistake because the more specific we can understand and more comprehensively we can evaluate all of the different components um, and not make these assumptions about you know oh, the child has ADHD so they that's probably why they score poor on language you know that kind of thing then you, we would have a better way to tackle uh, the, is, the true issues that are going on for that child
1: another perspective that's been missing um, um, in um, the assessment of uh, language disorders in children, has been a consideration of how the the kinds of evaluations and the kind of information that we present to families is received families. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the projects that we've been involved in here in the lab um, has been to um, conduct semi-structured, relatively open-ended conversations with parents about the experiences they've had uh, and working with different professions and talking about their child's difficulties. And to a person in our, in our study sample, and these, were, these were the moms of kids who we had already um, assessed for research purposes and uh, each child fit the uh, classic presentation of specific language impairments. So mm-hmm. these were with normal nonverbal abilities and no concomitant disorders like ADHD that would um, um, be part of the equation, and every person uh, expressed frustration with how people were talking about their child's difficulties, and nobody could nobody could um, with certainty explain what their child's difficulty was, and that was. Um, a a source of continuing um, suffering and confusion and anger so on more than a couple occasions uh, uh, mothers expressed uh, anger and hostility towards the speech language pathologist because they they didn't feel like they were getting a straight answer. Um, Part of what's going on here is that what what goes on in the schools is an eligibility audit. Uh, to make sure the child is, meets the criteria, whatever's in place, to receive cert- interventions for the child's difficulties. And the speech language pathologist thinks they're doing their job by identifying uh, strengths and weaknesses within, within language and then um, moving on to intervention as quickly as possible. Um, but from the parent's perspective, this is supposed to be where a diagnosis takes place, yeah. which is what yeah. happens uh, for those families who get a diagnosis of ADHD that's made outside of the school context. Yeah. Uh, there is no parallel place except the families sought out, um, and they rarely do, um, you know, an assessment from a university clinic or private practice. Are they going to get that diagnostic moment? Mm-hmm. Um, and what they're left with is, description, right, a rephrasing of the problems that they already know their child has. It'd be like if you went to a doctor and you were complaining of stomach pains and you were concerned that you might have something serious going on like um, um, gallstones or cancer and the doctor responds back with, well you have a moderate to severe uh, thoracic itis. Yeah, right. It's just it's just a, another description of yes. your problem. Yes. And, and we do that when we tell families that your yes. child has moderate to severe yes. deficit in grammar. Yes. and then we And then we launch into um, a discussion on what standard scores mean. Yes. Uh, and um, none of this is making sense. So what parents want you to do is tell them that it isn't autism. Yep. Tell them that it isn't ADHD, mm-hmm. tell them that it isn't apraxia, mm-hmm. tell them that it isn't auditory processing disorder. It's kind of interesting how those all start with the letter A, but um, <laughs> we, that's differential diagnosis. Yeah.
0: They also um, want you to tell them it's not their fault, and that yeah. it is something that is, uh, you know, biological. And I think that's something they don't no, get.
1: They, they, They can't get there. Right. If you don't give yes. them a diagnosis. Right. I agree. Right, because, yeah.
0: I think we come from a very similar place of advocacy, Sean, for a label and for labeling kids. Because, uh, you know, in working in research, that's been the biggest struggle is, you know, working with I have a family, for example. You know, they were in one of my studies and, you know, she said, what's going on? And I said, oh, you know, he, he's fitting the criteria for developmental language disorder. Oh, I've never heard of that. You know, he's been in treatment for, in the school for years. I, she goes, who diagnoses that? I said, well, speech language pathologist. So she goes back to her speech language pathologist and the speech language pathologist says, well, I can't really diagnose that, but I can tell you he's got language problems. So then she comes back and she's like, well, what? And it, it's, a, it's really frustrating. And then, you know, prior to, you know, getting, um, you know, some resources out there, like Rattle and DLD and Me, which Sean and I are on the, uh, found, I guess we're founding members. Is what we're calling ourselves. That uh, website, um, you know, there was nothing to even send them to. So it seemed actually, I really felt like I almost looked like a quack, to be honest, because I was basically <laughs> saying your child has this. No one they talked to would confirm it, and there was no resources on the web, right? And then the and the parents are in angst. And what I noticed is that what they would start to do is just kind of ignore what I said. You know like or ignore kind of that aspect of it right because it's like well, I don't know you know we don't know what they have.
1: I mean yeah. par- part of the part of that is, is recognizing that um, uh, speech language pathology is in its own little universe that it has to um, engage with other clinical categories um, if we're going to make sense to families and the the tradition in our textbooks has been to encourage clinicians to treat, um, you know, language uh, disorders uh, arriving from different sources as basically the same thing. They respond to the same interventions. Why bother getting into etiology? Etiology? Schmiology? Mm-hmm. And um, and we're starting to see some of the consequences of that. So. Uh, it's really hard for the public to understand what speech language pathology is Mm -hmm. and why it is any different from tutoring. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they've got a point. So um, if you're working on strengths and weaknesses and uh, you're not characterizing these things as deficits that are significant enough to become a clinical disorder, then you are tutoring. in the way that, like, the Kumon mm-hmm. facility do. Yeah. And
0: I think that you make such a good point. It's not, you know, for the clinicians listening to the podcast, it's not the clinicians' fault per se. This is our training. This is how we've trained clinicians as a field for years. And it has to come as a concerted effort to change that in our field, to change the, um, you know, this, this lack of differential diagnosis. It has to uh, be a, a groundswell. Of reasons why we need to change it as opposed to like oh I should have known that oh I why am I doing this like well it's not a blame game it's really just let's change it now let's make a difference and, and move forward in a different way
1: so that would be that the second presupposition yeah. um, that there is in both um, uh, clinical psychology and speech-language pathology a strong tradition of differential diagnosis and that seems to be true for clinical psychology and less true for speech language pathology. Um, now to kind of add a silver lining or maybe a hopeful note here, um, the, the third presupposition that I've talked about in various capacities is um, the extent to which we can identify clinical markers in both areas um, that Are capable of differentiating typical from atypical performance, which is what most of uh, the considerations have been directed at, and as well as differentiating between different types of atypical performance. And um, one of the consequences of uh, a couple decades of research focusing on the, uh, uh, the phenotype of specific language impairment has been to identify some uh, relatively robust clinical markers of the condition, especially in children in their early elementary grades, preschool to early elementary grades. And um, uh, when we have taken those measures, which are uh, non-word repetition, sentence recall, and tense marking, and um, uh, assess children with ADHD, we find no difference in performance between kids with ADHD and typically developing kids. And then, as you know, Tiffany, because you were a co-author on that paper, Mm -hmm. we looked at um, comorbidity. Mm -hmm. So kids who have both ADHD and language impairment based on um, experimental criteria, not necessarily receiving services in both areas. And we showed that there wasn't uh, an additive effect such that kids who had both ADHD and language impairment were demonstrably worse on those measures than kids with specific language impairment alone. And so um, to me, that's a signal that should be um, looked at more closely and replicated in other samples. But it suggests the possibility that um, our language measures might be um, suitable to the task. So that if you use one of those measures and you don't know the child's status, their ADHD status, um, it probably wouldn't have impacted their performance. Um, if they had ADHD, you didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also suggests that, um, um, you know, trying to um, uh, improve language skills by improving executive function or attention or these other elements that are associated with ADHD uh, is not likely to, to yield big dividends um, unless something drastically different is is, a, is used based, you know, compared to what we've done with uh, samples of kids with ADHD in the past. Um, so that's incurred. Um, we've also been able to show that if you take out those language items from those ADHD scales and um, uh, rescore them so that they're more language neutral, that um, it doesn't diminish the capacity of those ADHD scales to differentiate kids with ADHD from kids with typical development. But it does improve their capacity to differentiate a specific language impairment from um, ADHD. And uh, I'm using the term specific language impairment to identify that subgroup of kids developmental language disorders that the more strict criteria of of average uh, performance and nonverbal ability. The extent to which things get um, different when you relax the nonverbal ability criteria is um, still open to question. It could be the case that uh, things are different on that side. of uh, this.
0: I think these results have such clear clinical implications in my mind because one of the implications I know you've talked about, thought a lot about too, Sean, is the idea of screening and universal screening uh, to try to catch these kids who have problems in language. Uh, What do you think about universal screening for developmental language disorders and what have you studied in that realm?
1: Well, um, we just came out with a recent report looking at screening of a a community sample. And uh, we did something a little bit different than what's typically done with these kinds of studies. And what we did was uh, we introduced multiple reference standards for language impairment. Uh, So what typically happens in a diagnostic integrity study is you look at one reference, you you settle on a reference standard um, and then you take a look at different uh, measures to see which one Has the highest sensitivity and specificity relative to that standard. What we did was we used the standard of um, a performance on a standardized test. We used the self. Mm -hmm. We looked at two cutoffs, 85 and 80. Um, We looked at um, performance on the test of early grammatical impairment. We looked at uh, non-repetition. We looked at Uh, parental report of communication difficulties that was captured by the children's communication checklist. Um, And then we also included as a criteria uh, the children were receiving services uh, for speech uh, or language impairment. Um, And in the past people have offered that as a strong ecologically valid measure of language impairment because it's it's a functional deficit That is strong enough to evoke um, enough concern to get referred and then uh, assessed and then treated. The problem with, um, the potential problem with using receipt of services is that uh, we know that there's great disparities in access to speech language pathology services as they're delivered by the schools. So we know that for example um, uh, families that are Caucasian and whose uh, children who have mothers who have college education are uh, uh, more likely to get services. We also have some evidence to suggest that boys might be squeezing out services relative to girls, even when you look at children who have um, equal levels of performance on standardized tests. Um, uh, There's ethnic and racial disparities, Um, and so there's a lot of reasons to maybe not be too enthusiastic about the functional ecological validity, de facto receipt of services, um, and then we also know from uh, reports of, from epidemiological and longitudinal studies, um, uh, most notably the Iowa study, followed by Bruce Tomlin in the 90s and early 2000s, that uh, the majority of children that met research criteria for language impairment. Uh, didn't, get res- didn't get services throughout their academic career, even though they were at at clear elevated risk for academic and social-emotional problems.
0: Yeah, it wasn't even a severity issue, I remember reading. So that was really interesting, too. It wasn't like they had less severe language
1: issues. Yes, yeah. yeah, so going back to our study, <laughs> yeah. what we found was that our screening measures did reasonably well um, with most of our um, behavioral assessment criteria, but less well with um, receipt of services. Mm. And um, so there, so there's children with language impairments that weren't picked up. Uh, when we looked at the kids who were getting services, it was also true that uh, a not insignificant number of those kids. That were getting services didn't have a measurable language impairment by other criteria. Hmm. Hmm. So wow. there are children who are enrolled in services um, that uh, um, may not be, uh, and and we looked at we looked at pragmatics as a potential component yeah. Yeah. To a to capture, um, and you can get to that on the children's communication uh-huh. checklist, and that didn't seem to be contributing. uh, To this group of kids that were getting services without uh, a language impairment on one of the other um, uh, criteria that we were using.
0: What do you think it was?
1: Well, it was true that they were more likely to have college educated moms. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And I'm blanking on some of the other ones. We found what everyone else has reported. Yeah, right. um, so the racial disparity, yeah. even yeah. though her sample wasn't very heterogeneous, but yeah. um, were getting more services, yeah. but that didn't make significance. And then mom's education was one that mm-hmm. came across. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it could be a number of things. One possibility is that um, you can have in different clinical areas a hot housing phenomenon, mm-hmm. where parents. Uh, a parent of above-average abilities who have a child with average to low-average abilities interprets that as um, a deficit that needs to be, received right. see, clinical attention. Right. Uh, and depending on how strongly positioned they are for advocating for services, they might be able to get them in the way things are set up now. Yes. Um, if we had a universal screening, yep. had, and I'm not suggesting that we've Figured it out. Mm -hmm. It's 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 a it's a solvable problem. What is the best screening measure uh, for the for whatever language impairment definition we want to use? We can. That's that's an empirical question Mm -hmm. we can solve. Um, And um, and leaving the other the other thing that we've we've encountered when we've been. engaged in some focus groups with teachers is that uh, teachers don't like being put into the position to make these kinds of referrals. They don't feel equipped to do so. Um, and um, when we, we posed the question, well how much support would you have behind universal screening, the, the support from students was higher, the, I mean from teachers was higher than the support from speech pathology. Or, mm-hmm. um, are worried that this is going to crash their caseloads.
0: Right, that makes sense. I actually feel really positive. I feel more positive about this possibility because, um, as you know, Sean, uh, I wrote that a piece for DLD and Me called a, a Call for Universal Screening of Language. And one thing I've recently added to that was a spreadsheet, open Google Docs spreadsheet, to try to list off all the screening data that's out there and your papers listed in there, but to try to think about this, and I've actually had several people email me, uh, speech pathologists, uh, but a lot of special educators to say, Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, I want to do this, and what do you think it would look like, and are are very interested, and I'm hoping we can benefit from the movement to screen for dyslexia, that if we're screening in general, that maybe we could also tie together and screen for language. Uh, Do you agree, Norma?
2: Yeah, no I definitely do. I think I think that it's it would be interesting within the schools. I think that um, we spoke earlier the system itself is inherently not set up to diagnose children and that um, through the whole process of how you're evaluated and what your um, identification is if and when and perhaps that screening both for dyslexia and language impairment and maybe even throwing ADHD in there Um, Maybe that would force the system to change, but how it's set up now, I can see that there might be a lot of pushback just because in the same way with dyslexia, they're saying, well, we don't have professionals that are trained for this. You know, we don't know how to handle it. And that's why we don't want to identify. I can see very similar pushback happening in the schools for screening for language as well. Although I will say that, um, you know, there are some elements of kindergarten screening that certainly they look for articulation and um, do a lot of the expressive, receptive, um, quick checks. But um, we are very hesitant, like you said before, to there's no diagnosis. We're hesitant to label children. Um, So it will be interesting to see how that plays out in the schools. But I think that you know, screening might be that piece that, that breaks the camel's back in getting more training into the schools, so that we can appropriately identify all kids because every child deserves access to that label.
1: And what you do with this screening doesn't necessarily lead inevitably to diagnosis. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. RTI model allows us to have different um, places to land after we identify an individual mm-hmm. that um, is at risk for having a difficulty.
0: Yeah, um, I wrote a paper recently with Suzanne Adloff where we talked about uh, calling for language screenings within the RTI, RTI system, and I think that there's room for uh, thinking about a better Tier 2 model for language stimulation. That doesn't necessarily have to always be driven by the speech pathologist, but can be driven within general education, where if they have a risk, maybe they get some support. And that is a way to kind of move through the rank through RTI. And I've had better luck um, in thinking about screening when I work with a full district, not just the speech pathologist, but work at the district level, because my argument is for, you know, districts are very concerned about their reading scores. And we know from the Iowa study and other longitudinal studies that children who have DLD in kindergarten are at risk and very likely to be poor comprehenders in the future. And this is a big piece of that the schools are missing for their reading comprehension scores. So that's kind of the way I've Pitched it more is within that RCI realm and within the idea of improving uh, not only language scores but also reading scores along the way.
1: Yeah, there's a there's there is a, the sense that things are shifting mm-hmm. uh, on multiple fronts, and um, one thing that could happen with um, the um, renewed interest in sort of Elevating the visibility of developmental language disorder um, is that um, the, the identification of DLD is going to require a diagnosis. Uh, you, you are kind of engaging in a bit of malpractice if you are um, just calling something a disorder and not following it through right. with an official uh, um, uh, ver- official disclosure process. Yes. You tell the families this is what's going on. One of the one of the challenges with incorporating that into RTI is that that moment when you tell the family that the, your child has a disorder, it's called developmental language disorder, um, could come relatively late, or yes. you know, to when it could have been identified. Yes. So we're we're kind of in an interesting. Trap. So uh, we can certainly find kids who are at risk in preschool for what we're going to call specific language impairment or developmental language disorder. But there are some kids that seem to uh, use the, those, that, those, those following couple of years to catch up and seem to be doing okay. So the fact that those kids exist has prevented us from getting too excited about um, making a diagnosis early. Um, but waiting until the child is 8, 9, 10, 11 years old uh, before we tell the families that there is a disorder here um, uh, is not going to be received well. Um, and it's going, it's, it's going to make us look like we don't know what we're doing, even though our, our research literature provides us with some pretty good uh, measurement systems for identifying kids at risk. One of the things that I, I came to appreciate uh, looking at the assessment systems and speech language pathology relative to the assessment systems and um, uh, clinical psychology for ADHD and other behavioral disorders is that uh, our measures are, are very robust. Uh, they're very reliable. Uh, they measure uh, behavior firsthand. Symptoms we're after are usually literally falling out of the child's mouth. Um, There's no interpretation about why they're saying the things they're doing. Whereas uh, most of the time when people are being assessed for ADHD, uh, this is being uh, collected through informant rating scales. Um, It's a widely recognized limitation that informants have biases. Um, And one of the things we know about language impairments and kids who have language impairments is that adults uh, are very quick to assign negative attributions to kids who sound dumb or different or delayed or um, young um, mm-hmm. and um, uh, those are very, and those are even present in speech-language pathologists. Um, and so one, one of the cool things that's available on some of the newer scales to, to assess children is that there's actually validity checks to make sure that there isn't an overly negative bias, a hmm. positive bias brought in by um, the informant. Hmm. Um, well,
0: that's really interesting. I, yeah, that's, that is interesting. I do think that this idea of thinking about how other fields approach diagnosis, I know that's... Something that's really informed your work, Sean. It definitely has me with dyslexia. And back to the measurement issue, I I do find it kind of interesting to think about RTI uh, it, because what I see is that there's this big movement for dyslexia to screen early and diagnose early. But truthfully, in the research literature, you see that the stability of diagnosis of dyslexia is much lower in kindergarten than DLD, for instance. The stability of diagnosis of DLD in kindergarten is actually very high. So a child has language problems in kindergarten,
1: you see that that stability over time yes. is high. I mean, it, it, it's good to get relative comparisons because nothing's yes. perfect. Yes. And you can focus on the limitations yeah. of what's available to you yeah. uh, and not really appreciate that all clinical fields are struggling with these issues. Yes. And we're in some areas, we're actually doing pretty well.
0: Right, um, right. I so. think we're at a very hopeful time, as you said. Especially, um, you know, knowing this podcast is being released on DLD Awareness Week, that we're bringing so much awareness and that we're actually starting to think more about these issues that tie clinic and or clinical practice and research. And Sean, your work is, is such a nice example of that, of tying what's really happening in the schools, what's happening with clinicians and tying that to the research uh, work. So I, I truly appreciate that. I'm looking at our time, and I'm realizing we probably need to uh, wrap up a bit, and I always ask two questions of my guests, and I want to ask that of you, Sean. The first one is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about?
1: So we just started a longitudinal study looking at symptom progression in kids with um, language impairments um, that would fit the SLI profile Mm -hmm. or DLD. Subgroup there um, children with uh, ADHD children with both and then children with neither and we're we're following their development on um, uh, language we're looking at vocabulary we're looking at um, uh, verbal memory and we're looking at uh, grammar we're using grammatical catalytic judgment we're at grammar and um On the uh, um, uh, ADHD measurement side, we're looking at um, inattention, impulsivity, hyperactivity, and executive function. And we're following those four groups over time. We're looking at the age span between 7 and 12, which I think is an interesting one for these two conditions because that's when a lot of kids get identified for ADHD, and it's also a time when, uh, when kids with language impairments start to peel out of services because people have decided that things look reasonably well. Yeah. Uh, we, a, we don't need to attend here even though the longitudinal studies suggest mm-hmm. that these symptoms are very stable. So one of the things we're interested in is how often do children who start off in one group um, uh, drift into the other group and what sort of variables predict that um, transmission. So we're looking at, we're trying to capture um, cases where comorbidity occurs and identify what precedes what. Does, does the language symptoms come first and then they get um, uh, considered to be in, into the the orbit of ADHD uh, later on um, or vice versa. Uh, and the other thing I'm really excited about is looking at um, Uh, protective or resilience factors Mm. that prevent kids so the kids in the in the comorbid group there's a possibility that they will resolve in one of those domains um, and what is behind that that's cool. it is cool that's so cool (laughs) the the other the last really super cool bit is we're going to um, uh, collect measurements on siblings Oh, Uh, So the idea being that there might be family level risk between these two disorders that occurs across siblings so that maybe kids with uh, a specific language impairment are more likely than typically developing kids to have siblings with ADHD Mm -hmm. and maybe the siblings with ADHD uh, might have uh, more siblings with language impairments. Um, And um, I would um, like to be able to give a progress report, but it's way too early. We don't yes. have anything <laughs> to say at the moment, except, as you said, I think this is pretty cool.
0: And we'll be following that, for sure, because Norma will say uh, comorbidity is one of my favorite words. And I think it represents <laughs> that what we, where we need to go, right, in our field, because mm-hmm. uh, what struck me as a clinician is that I took all these courses on individual Uh, Mm -hmm. disorders, and then when I went out to see one child, I realized, whoa, there's a lot more going on, so I really, I I think that's very cool, and I love the risk resilience aspect as well. I think that's also an area we have to move towards to better understand changes over time. So my last final question for you is, if you would share with the audience, what is your favorite book from childhood or now, so it can be childhood or now, or both, whatever you'd like.
1: So... Um, I'm going to cheat and uh, make it a set of books. Oh, that works. So, um, uh, and this is going to be uh, books that I have identified as sort of formative in childhood. And um, I must have read uh, um, Dolaire's books, uh, uh, Greek Myths and Norse Myths, cover to cover, (laughs) hundreds of times Um, and um, it sort of like sparked an ongoing interest I've had even as an adult with sort of like um, uh, that magical realism genre Mm -hmm. and so um, I made sure that both of my kids um, got copies of those books and they reacted in the same way that I did Um, and uh, the artwork is incredible Um, and um, they were out of print for a while, which made me sad, and now they're back.
0: Oh, that's good, because I'll link it to the podcast website, because I listeners often like to take a look at the books and it opens up a new uh, uh, avenue for them. So I'll make sure I link that uh,
1: through Amazon or whatnot. And then the other, so that was one mm-hmm. work, set of work. And then the other one that I think, uh, this isn't really. Um, get to where I think you were going with that question, but um, uh, as a child and as a parent, uh, the the Ed Emberley books on how to draw um, oh. are,
2: are amazing... I loved those as a kid.
1: <laughs> there, is, there is something there about um, creating a, a composite out of decomposed little bits uh, you're able to give a child at a at a stage when they really can't draw starting off with the big picture, right? Um that I think has some parallels with some interests I have with how language builds up from little bits. Awesome. So, that's fantastic.
0: We well, I have to tell you that my uh 2 and 4-year-old often have to hear podcasts playing in the background and sometimes they're like, you know, Turn off those stories, you know, especially if I'm editing and different things. But I, but they do know that when I do a podcast, I often go get new books for them because I like mm-hmm. to get the books for them that the uh, guests have recommended. So I think they will quite appreciate that, especially my four year old because he, I forgot about those books and he loves to draw. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And it's such a great parallel, like you said. Yes. Well, Norma, I've had you say your favorite book before. So I don't know if you want to say it again. I know I won't say mine again. So we'll just have the listeners check back to episode four if you want to see. Uh, uh, I think it's four, maybe. I can't remember now. Check back to another episode if you want to hear about my book, favorite book and Norma's. And I do. I just want to thank you so much, Sean, for speaking Uh, with me today and Norma, and uh, I'm excited to release this podcast during DLD Awareness Day and get the word out. So thank you so much.
1: Yes, thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.